and welcome to the 30th episode of The Week with Roger, a conversation between analysts about all things telecom, media, and technology from Recon Analytics. I'm Don Kellogg, and with me as always is Roger Entner. How are you doing, Roger? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. So recently, the Biden administration released an infrastructure proposal, and we thought it would be a good time to talk through the implications for the telecom and broadband space. To do that, we asked John Handel to join us. John is a reporter for Politico, where he covers communications policy as well as the FCC. John, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So the Biden administration is working on a $2.5 trillion infrastructure plan. One of the key components of that plan has gotten a lot of coverage is the effort to close the broadband gap via $100 billion in funding. To start, John, can you talk to us a little bit about what's in the plan at this point? Sure. Yeah, the White House released this plan in the last week or so, and it does feature broadband very significantly, $100 billion total targeted to unserved and underserved parts of the country. Uh, it's also supposed to be future-proof broadband investment, which has created a lot of buzz about what type of technology will be used for this and whether that really harmonizes with what we've seen on Capitol Hill around kind of symmetrical broadband speeds where the upload and the download match. And, you know, there, there's already been a, a lot of pushback, too, to the way the White House has talked about this. They have talked about not only wanting to invest this broadband, but really wanting to prioritize how they work with local governments to own and operate some of these networks, working with cooperatives, and also broadband pricing. That was the part that really caught my eye, how much they really talked about wanting to make sure that different ISPs are open and disclose some of the details about how they charge customers. And, you know, the Biden administration, when they laid out this plan, they also talked about wanting to to bring down broadband pricing longer term. So I think some companies are looking at these different parts and are not necessarily thrilled right now. I think many have, have wanted there to be a big broadband effort, but they look at what's there and see some signs for, for concern. But many Democrats on Capitol Hill are thrilled. This harmonizes with what they've laid out. They have talked about this for a while. They had a version of legislation along these lines last Congress. And you saw uh, some some real leaders on the Hill, House Whip Clyburn, Jim Clyburn and Senator Amy Klobuchar, they introduced a, a very similar version to reintroduced it this this year, their Internet for All Act. So I think for them, it's it's a pretty good, exciting thing. They're very happy to see this. And this speaks to a lot of progressive priorities on telecom that we've heard for, for a number of years now. Yeah. And Really delighted to have you on. Every time I'm in D.C., I'm, I make an effort to meet with John because nobody knows the hallways of Capitol Hill better than, than John does when it comes to, to telecom policy. So really excited to have you. But yeah, you mentioned it. A lot of the alarm bells went off on a couple of things. One of them was, we want to bring down prices, Right especially with the push on Title II net neutrality? Is this the reintroduction of price controls, right? Which is like that specter that really scares the bejesus out of out of telecom and, and has that danger of limiting investment. And on top of it, then, the heavy focus on, on funding municipal and, and state-run enterprises that would directly compete with existing providers. Because when I read it, I, I read like, we don't mind if we do overbuilding, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and I think we're going to see those debates really break out this year because of that. I mean, especially on the pricing provisions. That was something that was deeply striking in terms of how prominent that was. 
And again, I think many Democrats welcome that debate. I mean, I think they look at that and say, this is an area we haven't focused on nearly enough. But I think you're completely right that industry is going to see that. And, you know, that's going to raise those same alarm bells that they bring to the table with uh, the net neutrality debates. And, you know, is this the first step toward the government taking a more regulatory role toward toward pricing? And you have seen some progressive Democrats floating those ideas in the last year or two, even though, you know, if you go back to the Obama era, you would see people like Tom Wheeler saying, oh, we have no interest in doing rate regulation of broadband. When you go back just a year or so, you saw Bernie Sanders on the campaign trail actively saying he would direct the FCC to take a a role over rate regulation. So, you know, it's, it's definitely in the conversation somewhere. I don't think many assume that the Biden plan means the Democrats are going to actually go down that road of trying to do this. I think many would still resist it. But the real question is, how are moderate Democrats going to look at this? You know, that's that's the thing I'm always curious about, too, when I look at these debates, because right now they're talking about moving this infrastructure plan through budget reconciliation in the same way they did the recent pandemic relief package. That would allow them to move this without any Republican votes. And you've already seen Republican lawmakers point to some of these provisions with concern. But the other question is just, can they keep their own caucuses together in the House and the Senate? Uh, Because if they can't, yeah, we're going to see some changes. Because Manchin would probably not be for a lot of the the, the price controls and, and things like that. You know, and there are other senators who would be probably quite critical about it. You know, I, I've done some research on if any other industrialized country has had such an interventionist, government interventionist approach to telecom networks. And the only examples that I can can find are the ones out of the the scary boxes of like Argentina, Venezuela, and, and Zimbabwe, right? And I'm looking at it as like, is this overly alarmist, right? Because they are such a trope uh, to to pick these examples because of the the, the massive dysfunction that, that happened afterwards. And yes, we need to do more on closing the broadband gap, but price controls, really? Yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing is the, the White House right now isn't getting too specific in terms of what that could look like. You know, they, they are pretty vague about that in the, the outline they release, because right now we don't have a detailed legislative proposal when it comes to the administration's view on this. We have the the outline that they released when President Biden gave his speech in, in Pittsburgh the other week. And that simply says that, you know, he has a commitment to, to long-term bringing these prices down and wanting there to be greater transparency around them. So I don't think we still know the extent to what that'll be, but you're right. I think that that's going to be the, the set of comparisons and the set of concerns that drive some folks. Potentially, you know, Senator Manchin's one person I do wonder about. He's someone who's cared about broadband for years, has partnered with Republicans on many bills in recent years. And I think about other Democrats too, like Senator Cinema. I mean, she was someone who broke with the Senate Democratic Caucus on issues like net neutrality and had broken in the House, too, on some of this. And one of the things that she really did show attention to was, you know, this idea of rate regulation. You know, this was something where when the House voted on banning broadband rate regulation, you generally saw a partisan divide. But Senator Cinema, you know, she always really was more reluctant to join with her Democratic colleagues on some of these issues. So I think that that's going to require 
some hashing out of, of these provisions before they, they would advance into law. Yeah, and it's really interesting. Due to a lucky coincidence, we just did a, a big survey and published the results on how to close the digital divide and and how to look at some of the the things that companies on on the edge are doing. And we found that seventy one percent of Americans are in favor of getting money from companies that are profiting from the internet, like Amazon, Facebook, Google, to make the internet more affordable. Because it's like, how do we broaden this funding base is a huge discussion, right? And here you have a whole set of the most valuable companies in the world profiting from the internet and not contributing to it, right? So so that might be an avenue that that might happen, right? Yeah, no, I think that there's been a a rising volume around this issue of how do we fund these subsidies? I mean, that's something that the major telecom companies, certainly AT&T and some others, they've been beating the drum on this for the last year. And I think they've looked at infrastructure as a way to really get into these questions of, you know, if we're going to have universal service, you know, how, how do you actually put together a universal service fund? You know, do we need direct appropriations? Do we need a different system than what we have now, which does kind of unfairly lean on the, the big legacy phone companies to, to get these different subsidies? And so I think, yeah, this is, this is certainly at the forefront of these debates. And you saw former chairman of the FCC, Ajit Pai, he put this front and center right at the end of his chairmanship. He hadn't really emphasized it as much during much of his time leading the agency. But at the very end, he was very uh, pointed in saying that it is not sustainable to have the universal service fund at the FCC as it is. We need to find a way around that. His idea at the time was, why don't we take the C-band revenue and have that fund, the universal service fund at the FCC, the billions of dollars of subsidies there, fund that for five years and let Congress come up with a solution you know, in those five years. So I think that you're going to keep seeing the telecom industry really, really pointing at this. Uh, there was a recent letter from many of the major companies partnering with the National Urban League and some other different groups saying, we need a permanent solution for, you know, subsidy programs at the FCC, you know, something like Lifeline, but more attuned to broadband, and that is more permanent than what we're seeing now with these pandemic relief measures. You know, we have the emergency broadband benefit moving forward at the FCC right now. So absolutely, Roger. I think that's that's going to be one of the most interesting pieces of this because it's also bipartisan. You know, the concerns around this are in no way limited to industry or limited to one party. I mean, you saw Senator Brian Schatz really harping on this issue, I want to say like two, three years ago in some of the FCC hearings. He was bringing this up as a concern about how sustainable our models are right now. So I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, and we have we have bipartisan concern. We, you know, we had Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee uh, on the program a couple of weeks ago, and it's all about how do we broaden that base, bring everybody along, and it should not only be rural, but it, there's enough in like poor urban areas where we don't have enough internet, also simply connectivity, just like we have in rural. It's just like you know better than I do. Every every senator is a rural senator, right? That's why it's a, such a, a winning concept. But how do we prevent this permanent underclass that is digitally disconnected? I think a part of the the struggle has been a structural one, right? I mean, one of the the big issues that keeps coming up in these broadband discussions is 
where do we direct the subsidies? What, what is the data we're using to, to direct them? How does that all work? And I think that that's, that's remained an issue over the last five or so years. I mean, during the, the first months of the Trump era, you had folks like Agriculture Secretary Sonny, Sonny Perdue talking about wanting to figure out how to better marshal existing sources of subsidies, you know, the Agriculture Department, at the FCC and elsewhere. I don't think we've really seen that still. And we've seen senators, especially some of these rural senators, you know, they, they've been bringing up these issues to this day. I mean, Senator John Tester, when he was questioning Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo during her nomination hearing, you know, he had said, you know, maybe we need some sort of central office for broadband or something like that, some some way to kind of consolidate these efforts. That's something that you see policymakers bring up time and time again, especially when we're seeing more money being directed at different places. I mean, the recent pandemic relief effort, they potentially are now putting the, the Treasury Department in charge of, of broadband grants, you know, and you've seen the Commerce Department in years past doing that. USDA obviously has a big role, and of course, the FCC. And I think we need to explain the USDA and, and agriculture because probably the no, our normal listener is like highly perplexed. What does agriculture have to do with broadband, right? That's a great question. Yeah, no, I think a big part of that is that the Agriculture Department has within it the Rural Utility Service, and they have been running out a variety of different telecom grants and subsidies for a number of years now. And you've seen over the last four years, they've set up a bigger program, uh, the Reconnect program, that gives out some of these. So I think a part of it is a product of who is uh, focused on these departments, meaning, you know, in the same way that you see a structural breakdown of, of a federal agencies who have a stake in this, you see a breakdown in a similar way jurisdictionally on Capitol Hill, meaning, you know, if you're a senator who sits on the Agriculture Committee, you have any number of interests that might be drawn to the Agriculture Department and be seeking internet connectivity in that way. And a senator who has a prominent role there they're going to be very invested in making sure, you know, this reconnect program at the agriculture department at RUS, that it functions and has robust funding and that feeds into what the appropriations debates are. So there's a jurisdictional debate on the Hill and that leads to a jurisdictional kind of division in, in some of these different federal agencies, you know, and there's always a question of which agency is going to be able to have a, a kind of guiding role for funding. Do we need a Department of Broadband, just like, you know, after 9-11, we got a Department of Homeland Security that took all the disparate offices and, and authorities and put it under one authority to make it more, you know, a bigger impact? I think that's certainly the John Tester point, you know, that he made early this year during that hearing. You know, he thought there did need to be something like that, but we really haven't seen proposals get off the ground in a bigger way along those lines. I mean, I think many would agree we probably need better strategy around where some of that money is spent, especially given even just looking over the last year or two, we have billions and billions of dollars now going out the door, both through FCC programs and some of the congressional pandemic efforts. That's a lot of money. And I think many have already been expressing concerns about what that's going to mean in terms of oversight. You know, you mentioned overbuilding before. It's department size, right? Yeah. The departments were smaller than what we are spending on broadband. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think I think there's going to be a sense of urgency around that, at least, to have like some sort of better national strategy for where money is spent, how that's going to work. And, you know, I'm not 
sure we are there yet, really, in terms of any of the recent activity. You've seen a lot of energy and excitement and you know, just enthusiasm for these issues. But those structural issues remain, and they've been the case for, for years. I mean, I think, you know, under the, the Trump administration, you saw some bigger kind of interagency councils producing reports on some of these things. And I think there were probably some good points of conventional wisdom for how to better do that. I think there was some dialogue. But I don't think that there's any sort of lasting bigger effect from that. I think these are still questions of, of, of who's going to be doing these these different roles or even who's going to be doing broadband mapping. I mean, you've seen both the FCC jumping in on that and you've seen the Commerce Department. I mean, these are these are kind of fundamental questions of how the government does these things, you know, so. Yeah. So what do you expect next from the proposed infrastructure and here particularly broadband plan. When do you think we will see some of the the details that give us a lot more insights than the broad brushes of, you know, apple pie and motherhood type thing that the Biden plan right now involves? Yeah, no, I think that's going to be the really interesting thing over the next month or two to, to watch the committees on Capitol Hill start start mulling over this. I mean, if they are going to be moving forward on infrastructure using the reconciliation process, as it indeed seems they might, that doesn't give them a ton of incentive to change a lot about these plans. I mean, I think some things will, depending on where you get democratic pushback. And so I think that's the thing to watch kind of across April and May to see, are there any moderate Democrats that kind of raise any sort of concerns around the broadband pricing provisions, around how things are structured. You know, that's where you're going to see some concern. I think there could also be some give and take about funding sources and and debates there. There's clearly been a partisan division about how much money is needed. I mean, I think you saw that pretty clearly in a recent House Energy and Commerce Committee hearing where you had former FCC chairman Tom Wheeler the Democratic former leader of the agency saying, you know, yes, this is the right path. We need $100 billion. This is, you know, or, or at least $80 billion for the deployment parts. He had been very much strongly pushing that. And you had former Republican Commissioner Mike O'Reilly. He was saying, you know, in his mind, we don't need more than $20 billion. So I think that those are going to be the kind of initial fault lines that guide the committee process that we see. I think they're going to move to probably hold hearings and mark up you know, some version of this, I think the Senate's going to be the bigger place to watch because of just the thin margins that exist there. And as you pointed out earlier, every senator is a rural senator in some respects. So I think the concerns might animate them differently there. So that's going to be the real test in my mind, watching what the debate looks like in the Senate Commerce Committee. And you're going to see a test too for Senator Maria Cantwell, who chairs the Commerce Committee. I think at the end of the day, what gets through her committee and how those negotiations play out a lot of that will rely on her and her style. And this is the first time she has chaired the Senate Commerce Committee. So I think that's actually going to be really interesting to watch, to see how she and ranking member Roger Wicker work together. They've had years now where they've been leaders atop the committee, but never quite with the Democrats you know, in, in the driver's seat there. So I'm curious to watch that. And I think by summer, we'll probably see versions kind of clearing the the, the floors potentially of these chambers. But again, that's if they can get to a point of consensus, at least among their own party. And that to me isn't clear yet. You know, I don't think we really have a full sense of that. I think you'll you'll certainly see a similar version to what the White House put forward clearing the House. It seems like there's much more support there for these ideas. And you have leadership very much invested in that. I mean, this has become a legacy item for Congressman Jim Clyburn. 
He was the the house sponsor of a very similar internet for all bill. So I think you'll you'll definitely see a, a very similar version past the house. They also have slightly greater margins there um, favoring Democrats. But yeah, the Senate will be the bigger case. And I think you're right to point as well to the other interests that are going to be pushing for structural changes to some of these different subsidy programs and, and how that works all throughout the, the process. I mean, that's something we've been seeing for months now already. And I think that's going to be allowed very active part of this, you know, going through the the committee process. So, so you mentioned Senator Cantwell, Senator Wicker. Who would be other key players in this debate, both on Capitol Hill and and around Capitol Hill? Right. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I think in the Senate, the people I also think about, you know, there, there's the moderates that we mentioned before, like Senators Manchin and Cinema who are also very active on some of these broadband issues. I mean, Senator Manchin's a co-chair of the Senate Broadband Caucus. Senator Cinema has been on the Commerce Committee there. The other people who are really notable, Senator Klobuchar, you know, she is the one who's been really kind of pushing some of these ideas around symmetrical speed, fiber. She has partnered with Jim Clyburn on, on those efforts. So I think she's going to be someone to watch. In terms of top Republicans who have cared about this, I think Senators Thune, Wicker, and Blunt and Blackburn, those are some that come to mind who have been very active on these broadband issues and will be very focused on, on pushing back against some of what they might not like. But I think the thing to also watch is whether any of the more bipartisan ideas that we've seen could maybe catch a ride in some form on anything that moves. So I, I would point to people like Senator Shelley Moore Capito, Republican from West Virginia. She has very much wanted to work with Democrats on broadband provision. Some of the visions of what she would want are a little bit different, but she's also often been able to partner with Democrats on bipartisan bills. So I'd look to her. I mean, she was in one of the Oval Office meetings with President Biden, I believe back in early February, and she brought up broadband. I mean, this is something that she's talked about for years and wanted. So I think that there is room for changing what the package looks like there. And I think that if there's anyone who would be involved in some of the bipartisan negotiations on this, it would be someone like Senator Capito, Senator Susan Collins, too, Republican from Maine. She has also shown interest in partnering with Senator Manchin on broadband provisions. And that's a space I find very interesting because I think it's not what leadership is typically looked look to when first putting together their package. I don't think these are the templates that initially form that. But I think these are voices that care about internet connectivity. They know that their constituents care about it and they care about it. So I would be very curious, you know, do those find a way into these discussions? And is that going to be maybe changing, perhaps even significantly, the shape of what we're seeing right now being offered from the White House, this initial kind of version one of, of the yeah. Biden White House plan. So so when we look around Capitol Hill and, uh, you know, obviously the telecom industry is interested in it, but also the internet companies also are, are interested in it because their entire business model relies on connectivity. How do you see those forces there play out? Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting piece of it. I think that they are walking a very delicate line, and a lot of that involves kind of other broader pieces of, of this infrastructure effort that the White House is, is pursuing. I mean, I think that they want to be seen as broadly supportive, but for the biggest internet companies, they're also, I think, 
eyeing some of the different tax implications of, of this infrastructure package. I mean, I thought it was very interesting to see um, Jeff Bezos, top executive at Amazon. You know, he he weighed in on the infrastructure package this past week and essentially suggested that he was very glad to see it, thought there were great priorities, but also said that Republicans and Democrats will probably need to work together and make concessions, which I found interesting. I felt that was a, a simple point at first, but one that speaks to the fact that he does see there need, needing to be like some sort of debate around this. And he ultimately nodded to the fact that they support a, a, an increase in corporate taxation as part of it. But, you know, I think that that's going to be a, a different discussion within the top executive suites for every major tech company, but how they approach that, what degree they would be happy to accept, what they wouldn't. But I think at the end of the day, you're right. They're also going to benefit from these broadband investments and also benefit from the the big R&D investments too that are envisioned in this. I think there's a real stake for that. One thing I will say, many of these tech companies, they've also been caring for, for years about what a, a 5G wireless eco- ecosystem would mean. One thing I found really surprising was that the White House infrastructure plan doesn't mention 5G in the slightest. There's no reference to that. Yeah, and the Trump White House couldn't stop saying 5G, right? Right. In the last two or three years, President Trump was constantly making references to 5G in the context of China. He was even name-checking 6G. So I think that, yeah, that, that's a really interesting piece, and that's kind of feeding some of the industry debates right now about just how this is structured and what that looks like. Because again, it is a, a plan that very much favors fiber deployment, many believe, because of the the, spe- the emphasis on future proof and these symmetrical fast speeds. The certain things where it gets really, really expensive. If you go to more rural America and you're trying to trench something, that's more than $100,000 a mile simply to dig a trench, right? Yeah. No, and I think that's, that's going to be a thing that causes all these companies that have also looked at fixed wireless and different 5G models. They're going to maybe question how this is structured right now because of that. And and I looked at some of these things. For example, one of the mind-blowing facts that I found is that in the New England states, more than half of all of new buildings that are being built are not connected to the sewage system. So are we going to dig a trench for a fiber cable to every household, but not connect them to the sewage system because it's too expensive, right? Almost a third of all the houses in New England, no public sewage. They have cesspools, right? It's that that kind of sometimes disconnect. I I hear fiber to, to every household, but I'm like, how about sewage to every household? It's not that different, right? Yeah. Well, that'll be the interesting thing, I think, as different members, especially the rank and file members, kind of hear from different invested parties on this and consider the implications. And, you know, I think you are going to see this strong push for keeping it more or less as structured, at least in the House side, though. I mean, again, I go back to the recent House Energy and Commerce hearing where you just saw the former chairman of the FCC, Tom Wheeler, really just hammering home on why he thought it needed to be fiber. This was something he really, really was animated about. And, you know, he would make the case that, like, you also need dense fiber for, you know, 5G backhaul and things like that. But that dense fiber in rural America, right? Right. right. It's a, that's like contradictory. Right. I mean, the actual cost of 
building it out seem yeah. very, very high and, and notable when it comes to this debate in terms of how the money would be best spent. I mean, I think that you're going to see other other trade groups, other companies questioning that because it goes right in the face of their own deployment models that they say are perfectly adequate for serving consumers. That would be the case here from a lot of companies. Because uh, the other research that I did was like, everybody's using electrification as an example, uh, as a success story for this. 1% of dwellings in this country still don't have electricity. They're being powered by generators. The costs go exponentially up as you go towards the 100%. And where do you draw the line? If it's really 100%, well, connect everybody with electricity and connect everybody with the sewage system. Well, you certainly can't do anything with broadband if you don't have any electricity, right? Yeah, and, and exactly. So you, you might have like households that have a broadband cable could do it with a generator behind the house. The, the jokes write themselves. And Roger, you're getting to one of the most fun parts of this debate, I think, which is this is bringing to the forefront kind of definitional questions, I think, for Democrats and Republicans and everyone across the board of what is broadband? How fast is it? What do we classify it as? You know, all of these questions, I think, are, are kind of driving these debates. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot more back and forth on, on what that looks like. Again, I think that's going to be true in the context of net neutrality, in the context of broadband. Is it like electrification? And if so, you know, what is the cutoff point for what is or isn't that? So it's going to be a fun year. Well, it sounds like the jokes about infrastructure year may actually come true. John, thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, that was great. We'll keep covering this, and uh, we may have you back on as there are more, uh, more details emerge. Thanks, Don. Thanks, Roger. It's been fun. Thank you, John, for having us and, and providing an insight that usually a lot of people don't get of who are the players on Capitol Hill and, and around it in, in a decision that will impact you know, millions of Americans. Thank you. Thank you.